0: All in gold, Sturm said coldly. Worthless these days, since steel's the only thing of any value. His voice trailed off. His eyes widened in horror. What is it? shouted Caraman, drawing his sword. I don't know, Sturm said, more as a gasp than words. I do. Raceland breathed as the thing took shape before his eyes. It is the spirit of a dark elf. I warned you not to open that door. Do something, Eben said, stumbling backward. Put up your weapons, fools, Raistlin said in a piercing whisper. You cannot fight her. Her touch is death. And if she wails, while we are within these walls, we are doomed. Her keening voice alone kills. Run, run, all of you, quickly, through the south door! Even as they fell back, the darkness in the treasure room took shape, coalescing into the coldly beautiful, distorted features of a female drow. An evil elf of ages past, whose punishment for crimes unspeakable, had been execution. Then... The powerful elven magic-users chained her spirit, forcing her to guard forever the king's treasure. At the sight of these living beings she stretched out her hands, craving the warmth of flesh, and opened her mouth to scream out her grief and her hatred of all living things. The companions turned and fled, stumbling over each other in their haste to escape through the bronze door. Caraman fell over his brother, knocking the staff from Raistlin's hand. The staff clattered on the floor, its light still glowing. For only dragonfire can destroy the magic crystal. But now its light flared out over the floor, plunging the rest of the room into darkness. Seeing her prey escape, the spirit flitted into the chain room, A grasping hand brushing Eben's cheek, he screamed at the chilling, burning touch and collapsed. Sturm caught him and dragged him through the door just as Raceland grabbed his staff, and he and Karaman lunged through. Is that everyone? Tanis asked, reluctant to close the door. Then he heard a low, moaning sound, so frightful that he felt his heart stop beating for a moment. Fear seized him. He couldn't breathe. The cry ceased, and his heart gave a great, painful leap. The spirit sucked in its breath to scream again. No time to look! Raceland gasped. Shut the door, brother! Caraman threw all his weight on the bronze door. It slammed shut with a boom that echoed through the hall. That won't stop her! Eben cried, panic-stricken. No, said Raislin softly. Her magic is powerful, more powerful than mine. I can cast a spell on the door, but it will weaken me greatly. I suggest you run while you can. If it fails, perhaps I can stall her. Riverwind, take the others on ahead, Tannis ordered. Sturm and I'll stay with Raislin and Caraman. The others crept down the dark corridor looking back to watch in horrible fascination. Raistlin ignored them and handed the staff to his brother. The light from the glowing crystal flashed out at the unfamiliar touch. The mage put his hands on the door, pressing both palms flat against it. Closing his eyes, he forced himself to forget everything, except the magic. BUDRUNIN His concentration broke as he felt a terrible chill. The Dark Elf! She had recognized his spell and was trying to break him. Images of his battle with another Dark Elf in the Towers of High Sorcery came back to his mind. He struggled to blot out the evil memory of the battle that wrecked his body and came close to destroying his mind. But he felt himself losing control he had forgotten the words. The door trembled, the elf was coming through. Then, from somewhere inside the mage came a strength he had discovered within himself only twice before, in the tower, and on the altar of the black dragon in Zaktzaroth. The familiar voice that he could hear clearly in his mind yet never identify, spoke to him, repeating the words of the spell. Raceland shouted them aloud in a strong, clear voice that was not his own. Kalisan Buderonen, Kara Emarath! From the other side of the door came a wail of disappointment, failure. The door held. The mage collapsed. Karaman handed the staff to Eben as he picked up his brother in his arms and followed the others as they groped their way along the dark passage. Another secret door opened easily to Flint's hand, leading to a series of short, debris-filled tunnels. Trembling with fear, the companions wearily made their way past these obstacles. Finally, they emerged into a large, open room filled from ceiling to floor with stacks of wooden crates. River Wind lit a torch on the wall. The crates were nailed shut. Some bore the label solace. Some gateway. This is it. We're inside the fortress, Giltanas said, grimly victorious. We stand in the cellar of Pax Tharkis. Thank the true gods. Tanis sighed and sank onto the floor, the others slumping down beside him. It was then they noticed that Fisban and Tasselhoff were missing. Chapter 11 Lost The Plan Betrayed Tasselhoff could never, afterward, clearly recall those last few panicked moments in the chain room. He remembered saying, A dark elf? Where? And standing on his tiptoes, trying desperately to see, when suddenly the glowing staff fell on the floor. He heard Tannis shouting, and, above that, a kind of moaning sound that made the Kender lose all sense of where he was, or what he was doing. Then strong hands grabbed him around the waist, lifting him up into the air. Climb! shouted a voice beneath him. Tasselhoff stretched out his hands, felt the cool metal of the chain, and began to climb. He heard a door, boom, far below, and the chilling wail of the dark elf again. It didn't sound deadly this time, more like a cry of rage and anger. Tass hoped this meant his friends had escaped. I wonder how I'll find them again, he asked himself softly, feeling discouraged for a moment. Then he heard Fizban muttering to himself and cheered up. He wasn't alone. Thick, heavy darkness wrapped around the kender. Climbing by feel alone, he was growing extremely tired when he felt cool air brush his right cheek. He sensed, rather than saw, that he must be coming to the place where the chain and the mechanism linked up. Tas was rather proud of that pun. If only he could see. Then he remembered. He was, after all, with a magician. We could use a light, Tass called out. A fight? Where? Fizban nearly lost his grip on the chain. Not fight, light, Tass said patiently, clinging to a link. I think we're near the top of this thing and we really ought to have a look around. Oh, certainly. Let's see. Light. He heard the magician fumbling in his pouches. Apparently he found what he was searching for because he soon gave a little crow of triumph. Spoke a few words and a small puffball of bluish-yellow flame appeared, hovering near the magician's hat. The glowing puffball whizzed up danced around Tasselhoff as if to inspect the kender, then returned to the proud magician. Tass was enchanted. He had all sorts of questions regarding the wonderful flaming puffball, but his arms were getting shaky and the old magician was nearly done in. He knew they had better find some way to get off this chain. Looking up, he saw that they were, as he had guessed, at the top part of the fortress. The chain ran up over a huge wooden cogwheel mounted on an iron axle anchored in solid stone. The links of the chain fit over teeth big as tree trunks. Then the chain stretched out across the wide shaft, disappearing into a tunnel to the Kender's right. We can climb onto that gear and crawl along the chain into the tunnel, the Kender said, pointing. Can you send the light up here? Light to the wheel. Fizban instructed. The light wavered in the air for a moment, then danced back and forth in a decidedly naysaying manner. Fizban frowned. Light to the wheel! he repeated firmly. The puffball flame darted around to hide behind the magician's hat. Fizban, making a wild grab for it, nearly fell and flung both arms around the chain. The puffball light danced in the air behind him as if enjoying the game. Ah, uh, I guess we've got enough light after all, Tass said. No discipline in the younger generation, Fizban grumbled. His father, now there was a puffball. The old magician's voice died away as he began to climb again, the puffball flame hovering near the tip of his battered hat. Tas soon reached the first tooth on the wheel. Discovering the teeth were rough-hewn and easy to climb, Tass crawled from one to another until he reached the top. Fizban, his robes, hiked up around his thighs, followed with amazing agility. Could you ask the light to shine in the tunnel? Tass asked. Light to the tunnel, Fizban ordered, his bony legs wrapped around a link in the chain. The puffball appeared to consider the command. Slowly, it skittered to the edge of the tunnel, and then stopped. Inside the tunnel, the magician commanded. The puffball flame refused. I think it's afraid of the dark, Fizban said apologetically. My goodness, how remarkable, the kendor said in astonishment. Well, he thought for a moment. If it will stay where it is, I think I can see enough to make my way across the chain. It looks like it's only about fifteen feet or so to the tunnel. With nothing below but several hundred feet of darkness and air, never mind the stone floor at the bottom, Tass thought. Someone should come up here and grease this thing, Fizban said, examining the axle critically. That's all you get today, shoddy workmanship. I'm really rather glad they didn't, Tass said mildly, crawling forward onto the chain. About halfway across the gap, the Kender considered what it would be like to fall from this height, tumbling down and down and down, then hitting the stone floor at the bottom. He wondered what it would feel like to splatter all over the floor. Get a move on, Fizban shouted crawling out onto the chain after the kender. Tass crawled forward quickly to the tunnel entrance, where the puffball flame waited, then jumped off the chain onto the stone floor about five feet below him. The puffball flame darted in after him, and finally Fizban reached the tunnel entrance too. At the last moment he fell, but Tass caught hold of his robes and dragged the old man to safety. They were sitting on the floor, resting, when the old man's head snapped up. My staff! he said. What about it? Tass yawned, wondering what time it was. The old man struggled to his feet. Left it down below, he mumbled, heading for the chain. Wait! You can't go back! Tasselhoff jumped up in alarm. Who says? asked the old man petulantly, his beard bristling. i am mean Tass stuttered. It would be too dangerous, but I know how you feel. My hoop down there. Hmm, Fizban said, sitting back down disconsolately. Was it magic? Tass asked after a moment. I was never quite certain, Fizban said wistfully. Well said Tass, practically. Maybe after we finish the adventure we can go back and get it. Now let's try to find some place to rest. He glanced around the tunnel. It was about seven feet from floor to ceiling. The huge chain ran along the top with numerous smaller chains attached, stretching across the tunnel floor into a vast, dark pit beyond. Tass, staring down into it, could vaguely make out the shape of gigantic boulders. What time do you suppose it is? Tass asked. time, said the old man. And we might as well rest right here. It's as safe a place as any. He plopped back down. Pulling out a handful of quiff-pa, he began to chew on it noisily. The puffball flame wandered over and settled on the brim of the magician's hat. Tass sat down next to the mage and began to nibble on his own bit of dried fruit. Then he sniffed. There was suddenly a very peculiar smell, like someone burning old socks. Looking up, he sighed and tugged on the magician's robe. Uh, his ban? he said. Your hat's on fire. Flint, Tannis said sternly. For the last time I feel as badly as you do about losing Tass, but we cannot go back. He's with Fisban, and knowing those two, they'll both manage to get out of whatever predicament they're in. If they don't bring the whole fortress down around our ears, Sturm muttered. The dwarf Wiped his hand across his eyes, glared at Tannis, then whirled on his feet and stumped back to a corner where he hurled himself onto the floor, sulking. Tannis sat back down. He knew how Flint felt. It seemed odd. There'd been so many times he could happily have strangled the Kender, but now that he was gone, Tannis missed him and for exactly the same reasons. There was an innate, unfailing cheerfulness about Tasselhoff that made him an invaluable companion. No danger ever frightened Akender, and therefore Tass never gave up. He was never at a loss for something to do in an emergency. It might not always be the right thing, but at least he was ready to act. Tannis smiled sadly. I only hope this emergency doesn't prove to be his last he thought. The companions rested for an hour, eating quiff pa and drinking fresh water from a deep well they discovered. Raistlin regained consciousness but could eat nothing. He sipped water then lay limply back. Karaman broke the news to him about Fizban hesitantly, fearing his brother might take the old mage's disappearance badly. But Raisland simply shrugged closed his eyes and sank into a deep sleep. After Tannis felt his strength return, he rose and walked toward Gilthanus, noting that the elf was intently studying a map. Passing Lorana who sat alone, he smiled at her. She refused to acknowledge it. Tannis sighed. Already he regretted speaking harshly to her, back in the Slamori. He had to admit that she had handled herself remarkably well under terrifying circumstances. She had done what she was told to, quickly and without question. Tanis supposed he would have to apologize. But first he needed to talk to Gilfinas. What's the plan? he asked, sitting down on a crate. Yes, where are we? Sturm asked. Soon almost everyone was crowded around the map except Raistlin, who appeared to sleep, though Tannis thought he saw a slit of gold shining through the mage's supposedly closed eyelids. Gilthanas spread his map flat. Here is the fortress of Pax and the surrounding mine area, he said. Then he pointed. We are in the cellars here on the lowest level. Down this hallway, about fifty feet from here, are the rooms where the women are imprisoned. This is a guard room, across from the women, and this he tapped the map, gently, is the lair of one of the red dragons, the one Lord Verminard called Ember. The dragon is so big, of course, that the lair extends up above ground level communicating with Lord Verminard's chambers on the first floor, up through the gallery on the second floor, and out into the open sky. Gilthanas smiled bitterly. On the first floor behind Verminard's chambers is the prison where the children are kept. The Dragon High Lord is wise. He keeps the hostages separated, knowing that the women would never consider leaving without their children, and the men would not leave without their families. The children are guarded by a second red dragon in this room. The men, about three hundred of them, work in mines out in the mountain caves. There are several hundred gully dwarves working the mines as well. You seem to know a lot about Pax Tharkas," Eben said. Gilthanus glanced up quickly. "What do you insinuate?" "I'm not insinuating anything," Eben answered. It's just that you know a lot about this place for never having been here. And wasn't it interesting that we kept running into creatures who damn near killed us back in the Slah Eben. Tannis spoke very quietly. We've had enough of your suspicions. I don't believe any of us is a traitor. As Raiceland said, the traitor could have betrayed any of us long before this. What's the point of coming this far? To bring me and the discs to Lord Gold Goldmoon said softly. He knows I am here, Tannis. He and I are linked by our faith. That's ridiculous, Sturm snorted. No, it isn't, Goldmoon said. Remember there are two constellations missing. One was the Queen of Darkness. From what little I've been able to understand... In the Disks of Mishikal, the Queen was also one of the ancient gods. The gods of good are matched by the gods of evil, with the gods of neutrality striving to keep the balance. Verminard worships the Queen of Darkness as I worship Mishikal. That is what Mishikal meant when she said we were to restore the balance. The promise of good that I bring is the one thing he fears. And he is exerting all his will to find me. The longer I stay here... Her voice died. All the more reason to quit bickering, Tannis stated, switching his gaze to Eben. The fighter shrugged. Enough said. I'm with you. What is your plan, Gilthinus? Tannis asked, noticing with irritation... That Sturm and Karaman and Eben exchanged quick glances, three humans sticking together against the elves. He caught himself thinking. But perhaps I'm just as bad, believing in Gilthanas because he's an elf. Gilthanas saw the exchange of glances too. For a moment he stared at them with an intense, unblinking gaze, then began to speak in a measured tone. Considering his words, as if reluctant to reveal any more than was absolutely necessary. Every evening, ten to twelve women are allowed to leave their cells and take food to the men in the mines. Thus the High Lord lets the men see that he is keeping his side of the bargain. The women are allowed to visit the children once a day for the same reason. My warriors and I planned to disguise ourselves as women, Go out to the men in the mines, tell them of the plan to free the hostages, and alert them to be ready to strike. Beyond that we had not thought, particularly in regard to freeing the children. Our spies indicated something strange about the dragon guarding the children, but we could not determine what. What sp... Karaman started to ask, caught Tanis's eye and thought better of his question. Instead he asked... When will we strike? And what about the dragon, Ember? We strike tomorrow morning. Lord Verminard and Ember will most certainly join the army tomorrow as it reaches the outskirts of Quallanasty. He has been preparing for this invasion a long time. I do not believe he will miss it. The group discussed the plan for several minutes adding to it, refining it, generally agreeing that it appeared viable. They gathered their things as Karaman woke his brother. Sturm and Eben pushed open the door leading to the hallway. It appeared empty, although they could hear faint sounds of harsh, drunken laughter from a room directly across from them. Draconians Silently, the companions slipped into the dark. Dingy corridor. Tasselhoff stood in the middle of what he had named the mechanism room, staring around the tunnel lighted dimly by the puffball. The Kender was beginning to feel discouraged. It was a feeling he didn't get often, and likened to the time he'd eaten an entire green tomato pie acquired from a neighbor. To this day, discouragement and green tomato pie both made him want to throw up. There's got to be some way out of here, said the kender. Surely they inspect the mechanism occasionally, or come up to admire it, or give tours or something. He and Fisban had spent an hour walking up and down the tunnel, crawling in and out among the myriad chains. They found nothing. It was cold and barren, and covered with dust. Speaking of light said the old magician suddenly, though they hadn't been. Look there! Tasselhoff looked. A thin sliver of light was visible through a crack in the bottom of the wall, near the entrance to the narrow tunnel. They could hear voices, and the light grew brighter as if torches were being lit in a room below them. Maybe that's the way out, the old man said. Running lightly down the tunnel, Tass knelt, and peered through the crack. Come here! The two looked down into a large room, furnished with every possible luxury. All that was beautiful, graceful, delicate, or valuable in the lands under Verminard's control had been brought to decorate the private chambers of the Dragon High Lord. An ornate throne stood at one end of the room, Rare and priceless silver mirrors hung on the walls, arranged so cunningly that no matter where a trembling captive turned, the only image he saw was the grotesque, horned helm of the dragon high lord glowering at him. That must be him, Tass whispered to Fisban. That must be Lord Verminard. The kender sucked in his breath in awe. That must be his dragon. Ember, the one Gilthanas told us about, that killed all the elves in solace. Ember, or Pyros, his true name being a secret known only to Draconians or to other dragons, never to common mortals, was an ancient and enormous red dragon. Pyros had been given to Lord Verminard ostensibly as a reward from the Queen of Darkness to her cleric. In reality, Pyros was sent to keep a watchful eye on Verminard, who had developed a strange paranoid fear regarding discovery of the true gods. All the dragon high lords on Kryn possessed dragons, however, though perhaps not as strong and intelligent. For Pyros had another more important mission that was secret. Even to the dragon high lord himself, a mission assigned to him by the Queen of Darkness and known only to her, and her evil dragons. Pyros's mission was to search this part of Ansalon for one man, a man of many names. The Queen of Darkness called him Everman. The dragons called him Green Gemstone Man. His human name was Barum, and it was because of this unceasing search for the human Barum that Pyros was present in Verminard's chamber this afternoon, when he would have much preferred to be napping in his lair. Pyros had received word that Fumaster Turda was bringing in two prisoners for interrogation. There was always the possibility this Barum might be one of them. Therefore the dragon was always present during interrogations, though he often appeared vastly bored. The only time interrogations became interesting, as far as Pyros was concerned, was when Verminard ordered a prisoner to feed the dragon. Pyros was stretched out along one side of the enormous throne room, completely filling it. His huge wings were folded at his sides, his flanks— heaved with every breath he took, like some great gnomish engine. Dozing, he snorted and shifted slightly. A rare vase toppled to the floor with a crash. Verminard looked up from his desk where he was studying a map of qualinasti Transform yourself before you wreck the place! He snarled. Pyros opened one eye regarded Verminard coldly for a moment, then grudgingly rumbled a brief word of magic. The gigantic red dragon began to shimmer like a mirage, the monstrous dragon shape condensing into the shape of a human male, slight of build with dark black hair, a thin face, and slanting red eyes. Dressed in crimson robes, Pyros, the man, walked to a desk near Verminard's throne. Sitting down, he folded his hands and stared at Verminard's broad, muscled back with undisguised loathing. There was a scratch at the door. Enter! A... Verminard commanded absently. A draconian guard threw open the door, admitting Hugh Master Turda and his prisoners then withdrew, swinging the great bronze and gold doors shut. Verminard kept the few master waiting several long minutes while he continued to study his battle plan. Then, favoring Turdor with a condescending gaze, he walked over and ascended the steps to his throne. It was elaborately carved to resemble the gaping jaws of a dragon. Verminard was an imposing figure. Tall and powerfully built, he wore dark, night-blue dragon-scale armor trimmed in gold. The hideous mask of a dragon high lord concealed his face. Moving with a grace remarkable in such a large man, he leaned back comfortably, his leather-encased hand absently caressing a black, gold-trimmed mace by his side. Verminard regarded Turda and his two captives irritably, knowing full well that Turda had dredged up these two in an effort to redeem himself from the disastrous loss of the cleric. When Verminard discovered from his Draconians that a woman matching the description of the cleric had been among those prisoners taken from Solace, and that she had been allowed to escape, his fury was terrifying. Turda had nearly paid for his mistake with his life, but the goblin was exceptionally skilled at whining and groveling. Knowing this, Verminard had considered refusing to admit Turda at all today, but he had a strange, nagging sensation that all was not well in his realm. It's that blasted cleric, Verminard thought. He could sense her power coming nearer and nearer, making him nervous and uneasy. He intently studied the two prisoners, Turda led into the room, then, seeing that neither of them matched the descriptions of those who had raided Zaktzaroth, Verminard scowled behind the mask. Pyros reacted differently to the sight of the prisoners. The transformed dragon half rose to his feet while his thin hands clenched the ebony desktop. With such ferocity, he left the impressions of his fingers in the wood. Shaking with excitement, it took a great effort of will to force himself to sit back down, outwardly calm. Only his eyes, burning with a devouring flame, gave a hint of his inner elation— as he stared at the prisoners. One of the prisoners was a gully dwarf, Seston, in fact. He was chained, hand and foot, Turda was taking no chances, and could barely walk. Stumbling forward, he dropped to his knees before the dragon high lord, terror-stricken. The other prisoner, the one Pyros watched, was a human male. Dressed in rags who stood staring at the floor. Why have you bothered me with these wretches, few master? Verminard snarled. Turda, reduced to a quivering mass, gulped and immediately launched into his speech. This prisoner... The hobgoblin kicked Seston. Was the one who freed the slaves from solace, and this prisoner... He indicated the man who lifted his head, a confused and puzzled expression on his face, was found wandering around Gateway, which, as you know, has been declared off-limits to all non-military personnel. So why bring them to me? asked Lord Verminard irritably. Throw them into the mines with the rest of the rabble. Turda stammered. I thought the human might be... A spy. The Dragon High Lord studied the human intently. He was tall, about fifty human years old. His hair was white and his clean-shaven face brown and weathered, streaked with lines of age. He was dressed like a beggar. Which is probably what he was, Verminard thought in disgust. There was certainly nothing unusual about him... Except for his eyes, which were bright and young. His hands, too, were those of a man in his prime, probably elven blood. The man is feeble-minded, Verminard said finally. Look at him, gaping like a landed fish. I b-b-believe he's, uh... Deaf and dumb, my lord. Turda said, sweating. Verminard wrinkled his nose Not even the dragon-helm could keep away the foul odour of perspiring hobgoblin. So you have captured a gully dwarf and a spy who can neither hear nor speak. Verminard said caustically, Well done, Turda. Perhaps now you can go out and pick me a bouquet of flowers. If that is your lordship's pleasure, Turda replied solemnly. Bowing. Verminard began to laugh beneath his helm, amused in spite of himself. Turda was such an entertaining little creature. A pity he couldn't be taught to bathe. Verminard waved his hand. Remove them! And yourself! What shall I do with the prisoners, my lord? Have the gully dwarf feed Ember tonight! and take your spy to the mines. Keep a watch on him, though. He looks deadly. The Dragon high lord laughed. Pyros ground his teeth and cursed Verminard for a fool. Turda bowed again. Come on, you! he snarled, yanking on the manacles, and the man stumbled after him. You too! He prodded Seston with his foot. It was useless. The gully dwarf, hearing he was to feed the dragon, had fainted. A draconian was called to remove him. Verminard left his throne and walked over to his desk. He gathered up his maps in a great roll. Send the wyvern with dispatches, he ordered Pyros. We fly tomorrow morning to destroy Qualanasty. Be ready when I call. When the bronze and golden doors had closed behind the dragon-high lord, Pyros, still in human form, rose from the desk and began to pace feverishly back and forth across the room. There came a scratching at the door. Lord Verminard has gone to his chambers! Pyros called out, irritated at the interruption. The door opened a crack. It is you I wish to see, Royal One, whispered a Draconian. Enter, Pyro said, but be swift. The traitor has been successful, Royal One, the Draconian said softly. He was able to slip away only for a moment, lest they suspect. But he has brought the cleric. To the abyss with the cleric, Pyro snarled. This news is of interest only to Verminard. Take it to him. No, wait. The dragon paused. As you instructed, I came to you first, the draconian said apologetically, preparing to make a hasty departure. Don't go, the dragon ordered, raising a hand. This news is of value to me, after all. Not the cleric. There is much more at stake. I must meet with our treacherous friend. Bring him to me. Tonight, in my lair, do not inform Lord Verminard. Not yet. He might meddle. Pyros was thinking rapidly now, his plans coming together. Verminard has Qualaneste to keep him occupied. As the Draconian bowed and left the throne room, Pyros began pacing once again back and forth, back and forth, rubbing his hands together, smiling. CHAPTER Twelve: THE PARABLE OF THE GEM TRAITOR REVEALED TASI'S DILEMMA Stop that, you bold man! Karaman simpered, slapping Eben's hand as the fighter slyly slid his hand up Karaman's skirt. The women in the room laughed so heartily at the antics of the two warriors that Tanis glanced nervously at the cell door afraid of arousing the suspicion of the guards. Marita saw his worried gaze. Don't worry about the guards, she said with a shrug. There are only two down here on this level, and they're drunk half the time, especially now that the army's moved out. She looked up from her sewing at the women and shook her head. It does my heart good to hear them laugh, poor things, she said softly. They've had little enough to laugh about these past days. Thirty-four women were crowded into one cell. Marita said there were sixty women living in another nearby, under conditions so shocking that even the hardened campaigners were appalled. Rude straw mats covered the floor. The women had no possessions beyond a few clothes. They were allowed outdoors for a brief exercise period each morning. The rest of the time... They were forced to sew draconian uniforms. Though they had been imprisoned only a few weeks, their faces were pale and wan, their bodies thin and gaunt from the lack of nourishing food. Tannis relaxed. Though he had known Marita only a few hours, he already relied on her judgment. She was the one who calmed the terrified women when the companions burst into their cells. She was the one who listened to their plan and agreed that it had possibilities. Our menfolk will go along with you, she told Tannis. It's the High Seekers who will give you trouble. A council of High Seekers? Tannis asked in astonishment. They're here? Prisoners? Marita nodded, frowning. That was their payment for believing in that black cleric. But they won't want to leave. And why should they? They're not forced to work in the mines. The Dragon High Lord sees to that. But we're with you. She glanced around at the others, who nodded firmly. On one condition. That you'll not put the children in danger. I can't guarantee that, Tanis said. I don't mean to sound harsh, but we may have to fight a dragon to reach them and... Fight a dragon? flame strike. Marita looked at him in amazement. Pah! There's no need to fight the pitiful critter. In fact, were you to hurt her, you'd have half the children ready to tear you apart. They're that fond of her. Of a dragon? Goldmoon asked. What's she done? Cast a spell on them? No. I doubt Flamestrike could cast a spell on anything anymore. Marita smiled sadly. The poor critter's more than half mad. Her own children were killed in some great war or other, and now she's got it in her head that our children are her children. I don't know where his lordship dug her up, but it was a sorry thing to do, and I hope he pays for it some day. She snapped a thread, viciously. 2 not be difficult to free the children,' she added, seeing Tannis's worried look. "'Flamestrike always sleeps, late of a morning. We feed the children their breakfast.' Take them out for their exercise, and she never stirs. She'll never know they're gone till she wakes, poor thing. The women, filled with hope for the first time, began modifying old clothes to fit the men. Things went smoothly, until it came time to fit them. Shave! Sturm roared in such fury that the women scurried away from the night in alarm. Sturm had taken a dim view of the disguise idea anyway but had agreed to go along with it. It seemed the best way to cross the wide-open courtyard between the fortress and the mines. But, he announced, he would rather die a hundred deaths at the hands of the dragon high lord than shave his moustaches. He only calmed down when Tanis suggested covering his face with a scarf. Just when that was settled, another crisis arose. Riverwind stated flatly that he would not dress up as a woman, and no amount of arguing could convince him otherwise. Goldmoon finally took Tanis aside to explain that in their tribe any warrior who committed a cowardly act in battle was forced to wear women's clothes until he redeemed himself. Tanis was baffled by this one, but Marita had wondered how they would manage to outfit the tall man anyway. After much discussion, it was decided Riverwind would bundle up in a long cloak and walk hunched over, leaning on a staff like an old woman. Things went smoothly after this. For a time, at least. Lorana walked over to a corner of the room where Tannis was wrapping a scarf around his own face. Why don't you shave? Lorana asked, staring at Tannis's beard. Or do you truly enjoy flaunting your human side, as Gilthanas says? I don't flaunt it. Tandis replied evenly. I just got tired of trying to deny it. That's all. He drew a deep breath. Lorana, I'm sorry I spoke to you as I did back in the Slahmory. I had no right. You had every right. Lorana interrupted. What I did was the act of a lovesick girl. I foolishly endangered your lives. Her voice faltered, then she regained control. It will not happen again. I will prove I can be of value to the group. Exactly how she meant to do this, she wasn't certain. Although she talked glibly about being skilled in fighting, she had never killed so much as a rabbit. She was so frightened now that she was forced to clasp her hands behind her back to keep Tannis from seeing how she trembled. She was afraid that if she let herself, she would give way to her weakness and seek comfort in his arms. So she left him and went over to help Gilthanas with his disguise. Tannis told himself he was glad Lorano was showing some signs of maturity at last. He steadfastly refused to admit that his soul stood breathless whenever he looked into her large, luminous eyes. The afternoon passed swiftly, and soon it was evening and time for the women to take dinner to the mines. The companions waited for the guards in tense silence, laughter forgotten. There had, after all, been one last crisis. Raiceline, coughing until he was exhausted, said he was too weak to accompany them. When his brother offered to stay behind with him, Raistlin glared at him irritably and told him not to be a fool. You do not need me this night, the mage whispered. Leave me alone. I must sleep. I don't like leaving him here. Gilthanas began, but before he could continue, they heard the sound of clawed feet outside the cell, and another sound of pots rattling. The cell door swung open, and two draconian guards, both smelling strongly of stale wine, stepped inside. One of them reeled a bit as it peered, bleary-eyed at the women. they moving, it said harshly. As the women filed out, they saw six gully dwarves standing in the corridor, lugging large pots of some sort of nameless stew. Karaman sniffed, hungrily, then wrinkled his nose in disgust. The Draconians slammed the cell door shut behind them. Glancing back, Karaman saw his twin, shrouded in blankets, lying in a dark, shadowy corner. Fizban clapped his hands. Well done, my boy, said the old magician in excitement as part of the wall in the mechanism room swung open. Thanks, Tass replied modestly. Actually, finding the secret door was more difficult than opening it. I don't know how you managed. I thought I'd looked everywhere. He started to crawl through the door, then stopped. As a thought occurred to him. Fizban, is there any way you can tell that light of yours to stay behind, at least until we see if anyone's in here? Otherwise... I'm going to make an awfully good target, and we're not far from Verminart's chambers. I'm afraid not, Fizban shook his head. He doesn't like to be left alone in dark places. Tasselhoff nodded. He had expected the answer. Well, there was no use worrying about it. If the milk's spilled, the cat will drink it, as his mother used to say. Fortunately, the narrow hallway he crawled into appeared empty. The flame... Covered near his shoulder. He helped Fizban through, then explored his surroundings. They were in a small hallway that ended abruptly not forty feet away in a flight of stairs, descending into darkness. Double bronze doors in the east wall provided the only other exit. Now, now muttered Tass, we are above the throne room. Those stairs probably lead down to it. I suppose there's a million draconians guarding it, so that's out he put his ear to the door. No sound. Let's look around. Pushing gently, he easily opened the double doors. Pausing to listen, Tass entered cautiously, followed closely by Thisban and the puffball flame. Some sort of art gallery, he said, glancing around a giant room where paintings covered with dust and grime hung on the walls. High slit windows in the walls gave Tass a glimpse of the stars and the tops of high mountains. With a good idea of where he was now, he drew a crude map in his head. If my calculations are correct, the throne room is to the west and the dragon's lair is to the west of that. At least that's where we went when Verminart left this afternoon. The dragon must have some way to fly out of this building, so the lair should open up into the sky, which means a shaft of some sort and maybe another crack where we can see what's going on. So involved was Tass with his plans that he was not paying attention to Fizban. The old magician was moving purposefully around the room, studying each painting as if searching for one in particular. Ah, here it is, Fizban murmured, then turned and whispered, Tasseloff. The kender lifted his head and saw the painting suddenly begin to glow with a soft light. Look at that, Tasselhoff said, entranced. Why, it's a painting of dragons. Red dragons like ember, attacking Pax Tharcus and... The Kender's voice died. Men, knights of Solamnia, mounted on other dragons, were fighting back. The dragons the knights rode were beautiful dragons, gold and silver dragons, and the men carried bright weapons that gleamed with a shining radiance. Suddenly Tassiloff understood. There were good dragons in the world, if they could be found, who would help fight the evil dragons, and there was. The Dragon Lance, he murmured. The old magician nodded to himself. Yes. Little one, he whispered, you understand, you see the answer, and you will remember, but not now, not now. Reaching out, he ruffled the kender's hair with his gnarled hand. Dragons, what was I saying? Tass couldn't remember. And what was he doing here anyhow, staring at a painting so covered with dust he couldn't make it out? The kender shook his head. Fizban must be rubbing off on him. Oh, yes, the dragon's lair. If my calculations are correct, it's over here. He walked away. The old magician shuffled along behind. Smiling. Smiling. The companions' journey to the mines proved uneventful. They saw only a few Draconian guards, and they appeared half asleep with boredom. No one paid any attention to the women going by. They passed the glowing forge, continually fed by a scrambling mass of exhausted gully dwarves. Hurrying past that dismal sight quickly, the companions entered the mines where Draconian guards locked the men in huge cave rooms at night. Then returned to keep an eye on the Gully Dwarves. Guard duty over the men was a waste of time anyway, Verminard figured. The humans weren't going any place. And for a while, it looked to Tannis as if this might prove horribly true. The men weren't going any place. They stared at Gold Moon, unconvinced as she spoke. After all, she was a barbarian. Her accent was strange, her dress even stranger. She told what seemed a children's tale of a dragon dying in a blue flame she herself survived. And all she had to show for it was a collection of shining platinum discs. Hedrick, the solace theocrat, was loud in his denunciation of the Kweishu woman as a witch and a charlatan and a blasphemer. He reminded them of the scene in the inn, exhibiting his scarred hand as evidence. Not that the men paid a great deal of attention to Hedrick, the seeker gods after all had not kept the dragons from solace. Many of them, in fact, were interested in the prospect of escape. Nearly all bore some mark of ill-treatment, whiplashes, bruised faces. They were poorly fed, forced to live in conditions of filth and squalor and everyone knew that when the iron beneath the hills was gone, their usefulness to Lord Verminard would end. But the high seekers, still the governing body even in prison, opposed such a reckless plan. Arguments started. The men shouted back and forth. Tannis hastily posted Caraman, Flint, Eben, Sturm, and Gilthanas at the doors, fearing the guards would hear the disturbance and return. The half-elf hadn't expected this. The arguing might last for days. Goldmoon sat despondently before the men, looking as though she might cry. She had been so imbued with her newfound convictions, and so eager to bring her knowledge to the world, that she was cast into despair when her beliefs were doubted. These humans are fools, Lorana said softly. Coming up to stand beside Tannis. No, replied Tannis, sighing. If they were fools, it would be easier. We promise them nothing tangible and ask them to risk the only thing they have left their lives. And for what? To flee into the hills, fighting a running battle all the way. At least here they are alive for the time being. But how can life be worth anything living like this? Lorana asked. That's a very good question, young woman, said a feeble voice. They turned to see Marita kneeling beside a man lying on a crude cart in a corner of the cell. Wasted with illness and deprivation, his age was indeterminable. He struggled to sit up, stretching out a thin, pale hand to Tanis and Lorana. His breath rattled in his chest. Marita tried to hush him, but he stared at her irritably. I know I'm dying, woman. It doesn't mean I have to be bored to death first. Bring that barbarian woman over to me. Tanis looked at Marita questioningly. She rose and came over, drawing him to one side. He is Elistan, she said, as if Tanis should know the name. When Tannis didn't respond, she clarified. Elistan, one of the high seekers from Haven. He was much loved and respected by the people. The only one who spoke out against this Lord Verminard, but no one listened. Not wanting to hear, of course. You speak of him in the past tense, Tannis said. He isn't dead yet. No but it won't be long. Marita wiped away a tear. I've seen the wasting sickness before. My own father died of it. There's something inside of him, eating him alive. These last few days he has been half mad with the pain, but that's gone now. The end is very near. Maybe not. Tanis smiled. Gold Moon is a cleric. She can heal him. Perhaps. Perhaps not, Marita said skeptically. I wouldn't want to chance it. We shouldn't excite Elastan with false hope. Let him die in peace. Gold Moon, Tanis said as the chieftain's daughter came near. This man wants to meet you. Ignoring Marita, the half-elf led Gold Moon over to Elastan. Gold Moon's face, hard and cold with disappointment and frustration, softened as she saw the man's pitiful condition. Elastan looked up at her. Young woman, he said sternly, though his voice was weak. You claim to bring word from ancient gods. If it truly was we humans who turned from them, not the gods who turned from us as we've always thought, then why have they waited so long to make their presence known? Goldmoon knelt down beside the dying man in silence, thinking how to phrase her answer. Finally she said, Imagine you are walking through a wood, carrying your most precious possession, a rare and beautiful gem. Suddenly you are attacked by a vicious beast. You drop the gem and run away. When you realize the gem is lost, you are afraid to go back into the woods and search for it. Then, someone comes along with another gem. Deep in your heart, you know it is... Not as valuable as the one you lost, but you are still too frightened to go back to look for the other. Now, does this mean the gem has left the forest? Or is it still lying there, shining brightly beneath the leaves, waiting for you to return? Ellistan closed his eyes, sighing, his face filled with anguish. Of course, the gem waits for our return. What fools we have been. I wish I had time to learn of your gods, he said, reaching out his hand. Goldmoon caught her breath. Her face drained until she was nearly as pale as the dying man on the cot. You will be given time, she said softly, taking his hand in hers. Tannis, absorbed in the drama before him, started in alarm when he felt a touch on his arm. He turned around, his hand on his sword, to find Sturm and Karaman standing behind him. What is it? he asked swiftly. The gods? Not yet, Sturm said harshly, but we can expect them any minute. Both Ebon and Gilthanas are gone. Night deepened over Pax Tharkas. Back in his lair, the red dragon, Pyros, had no room to pace, a habit he had fallen into in his human form. He barely had room to spread his wings in this chamber, though it was the largest in the fortress and had even been expanded to accommodate him. But the ground-floor chamber was so narrow, all the dragon could do was turn his great body around. Forcing himself to relax, the dragon laid down upon the floor and waited. His eyes on the door. He didn't notice two heads peeking over the railing of a balcony on the third level far above him. There was a scratch on the door. Pyros raised his head in eager anticipation. Then dropped it again with a snarl as two goblins appeared, dragging between them a wretched specimen. Gally dwarf," Pyros sneered, speaking common to underlings. Verminard's taken leave of his senses, and he thinks I'd eat gully-dwarf. Toss him in a corner and get out! He snarled at the goblins, who hastened to do as instructed. Seston cowered in the corner, whimpering. Shut up! Pyros ordered irritably. Perhaps I should just flame you and stop that blubbering. There came another sound at the door, a soft knocking, the dragon recognized. His eyes burned red. Enter! A figure came into the lair of the dragon, dressed in a long cloak. A hood covered its face. I have come as you commanded, Ember, the figure said softly. Yes. Pyros replied, his talons scratching the floor. Remove the hood. I would see the faces of those I deal with. The man cast his hood back. Up above the dragon on the third level came a strangled, choking gasp. Pyros stared up at the darkened balcony. He considered flying up to investigate, but the figure interrupted his thought. I have only limited time, Royal One. I must return before they suspect, and I should report to Lord Verminard in due course. Pyros snapped irritably. What are these fools that you accompany plotting? They plan to free the slaves and lead them in revolt, forcing Verminard to recall the army marching on Quallanasty. That's all? Yes, Royal One. Now we must warn the Dragon High Lord. Bah! What does that matter? It will be I who deal with the slaves if they revolt, unless they have plans for me. No, royal one. They fear you a great deal, as all must, the figure added. They will wait until you and Lord Verminard have flown to Qualanasty. Then they will free the children and escape into the mountains before you return. That seems to be a plan equal to their intelligence. Do not worry about Verminard. I will see he learns of this when I am ready for him to learn of it. Much greater matters are brewing, much greater. Now, listen closely. A prisoner was brought in today by that imbecile Turda. Pyros paused, his eyes glowing, his voice dropped to a hissing whisper. It is he. The one we seek. The figure stared in astonishment. Are you certain? Of course! Pyro snarled viciously. I see this man in my dreams. He is here within my grasp. When all of Kryn is searching for him, I have found him. You will inform Her Dark Majesty? No. I dare not trust a messenger. I must deliver this man in person, but I cannot leave now. Verminard cannot deal with Qualinasty alone, even if the war is just a ruse. We must keep up appearances, and the world will be better for the absence of elves anyway. I will take the Everman to the Queen when time permits. So why tell me? The figure asked, an edge in his voice because you must keep him safe. Pyros shifted his great bulk into a more comfortable position. His plans were coming together rapidly now. It is a measure of Her Dark Majesty's power that the Cleric of Mishikal and the Man of the Green Gemstone arrive together within my reach. I will allow Verminard the pleasure of dealing with the Cleric and her friends tomorrow. In fact, Pyros's eyes gleamed. This may work out quite well. We can remove the green gemstone man in the confusion, and Verminod will know nothing. When the slaves attack, you must find the green gemstone man, bring him back here, and hide him in the lower chambers. When the humans have all been destroyed, and the army has wiped out Qualanasty, I will deliver him to my dark queen. I understand. The figure bowed again, and my reward will be all you deserve. Now, leave me. The man cast the hood up over his head and withdrew. Pyros folded his wings and, curling his great body around with the huge tail up over his snout, he lay, staring into the darkness. The only sound that could be heard was Seston's pitiful weeping. Are you all right? Fizban asked Tasselhoff gently, as they sat crouched by the balcony, afraid to move. It was pitch dark, Fizban having overturned a vase on the highly indignant puffball flame. Yes. Tass said dully. I'm sorry I choked like that. I couldn't help myself, even though I expected it, sort of. It's still hard to realize someone you know could betray you. Do you think the dragon heard me? I couldn't say, Fizban sighed. The question is, what do we do now? I don't know, Tass said miserably. I'm not supposed to be the one that thinks. I just come along for the fun. We can't warn Tannis and the others because we don't know where they are— And if we start wandering around looking for them, we might get caught and only make things worse. He put his chin in his hand. You know, he said with unusual somberness, I asked my father once why kinders were little, why we weren't big like humans and elves. I really wanted to be big, he said softly. And for a moment, he was quiet. What did your father say? asked Fizban gently. He said Kenders were small because we were meant to do small things. If you look at all the big things in the world closely, he said, you'll see that they're really made up of small things all joined together. That big dragon down there comes to nothing but tiny drops of blood, maybe. It's the small things that make the difference. Very wise, your father. Yes, Tass brushed his hand across his eyes. I haven't seen him in a long time. The Kender's pointed chin jutted forward, his lips tightened. His father, if he had seen him, would not have known this small, resolute person for his son. We'll leave the big things to the others, Tass announced finally. They've got Tannis and Sturm and Goldmoon. They'll manage. We'll do the small thing, even if it doesn't seem very important. We're going to rescue Seston. Chapter 13 Questions No Answers Fizban's Hat I heard something, Tannis, and I went to investigate, Eben said, his mouth set in a firm line. I looked outside the cell door I was guarding, and I saw a draconian crouched there, listening. I crept out, got it in a chokehold, then a second one jumped me. I knifed it, then took off after the first. I caught it and knocked it out, then decided I'd better get back here. The companions had returned to the cells to find both Gilfinas and Eben, waiting for them. Tannis had Marita keep the women busy in a far corner, while he questioned the two about their absence. Eben's story appeared true. Tannis had seen the bodies of the Draconians as he returned to the prison, and Eben had certainly been in a fight. His clothes were torn, blood trickled from a cut on his cheek. Tika got a relatively clean cloth from one of the women and began washing the cut. He saved our lives, Tannis, she snapped. I'd think you'd be grateful instead of glaring at him as if he'd stabbed your best friend. No, Tika, Eben said gently. Tanis is right to ask. It did look suspicious, I admit. But I have nothing to hide. Catching hold of her hand, he kissed her fingertips. Tika flushed and dipped the cloth in water, raising it to his cheek again. Karaman, watching, scowled. What about you, Gildanass? The warrior asked abruptly, Why did you leave? Do not question me, the elf said sullenly. You don't want to know. Know what? Tannis said sternly. Why did you leave? Leave him alone, Lorana cried, going to her brother's side. Gilthanas's almond eyes flashed as he glanced at them. His face was drawn and pale. This is important, Lorana, Tannis said. Where did you go, Gilthanas? Remember, I warned you. Gilthanas's eyes shifted to Raceland. I returned to see if our mage was really as exhausted as he said.